Shrink Wrap Radio number 840, psychologist slash ecologist Gay Bradshaw, Ph.D. on non-dual consciousness. And now it's time for Dr. Dave and Shrink Wrap Radio. You're on the couch again with Dr. Dave and Shrink Wrap Shrink Wrap Radio, all the psychology you need to know and just enough to make it dangerous, it's all in your head. And now here's your host, Dr. Dave. Today's interview is brought to us by my Oxford-educated London associate, Isabella Clark, who is also a broadcaster, blogger, an inveterate student. I'm so blessed to have someone of her caliber dedicated to Shrinkwrap Radio because from time to time she produces an interview with someone who isn't even on my radar. Such is the case with today's guest, who has for years conducted scientifically solid research on non-duality. This interview has really changed my own thinking and preconceptions. I've been a bit put off by people who say they are non-dualists because that very declaration seemed to me to set up a dualistic opposition right off the bat. This interview with Dr. Gabe Bradshaw gets me out of that loop and shows me how trivial my objection has been. Take a listen for yourself. So it's Izzy Clark today, and I'll be interviewing Gay Bradshaw. Gay, who holds doctorate degrees in ecology and psychology, has been sharing cultures and homes with animals all her life. For the past 25 years, her work has been dedicated to the self-determination and well-being of wildlife and domestic animals. Her diagnosis of complex post-traumatic stress disorder, CPTSD, among free-living African elephants sparked a new paradigm of understanding, trans-species psychology. This is the scientific recognition that animals share common brain structures and capacities with humans that govern thinking, feeling, dreaming, aspirations and consciousness. Since 2002, Gay has studied and practised mindfulness and meditation and created nature mindfulness teachings where animals, plants and other earth beings are active partners in humanity's evolution of consciousness. Her books include Pulitzer Prize-nominated Elephants on the Edge, What Animals Teach Us About Humanity, Carnivore Minds, Who These Fearsome Animals Really Are, and Talking with Bears, Conversations with Charlie Russell. Her latest book, The Evolved Nest, Nature's Way of Raising Children and Creating Connected Communities, written with Dasha Naves and with a foreword by Gabo Mate, MD, will be published by North Atlantic Books later this year. Now, here's the interview. So, Gay Bradshaw, welcome to Shrinkwrap Radio. Hi. <laughs> We'll be talking about um, your latest book, The Evolved Nest, but first, a brief introduction, a sort of potted personal history, if you like, so that listeners have some context and understand who you are and where you come from and uh, why we're speaking to you today. Well, where do I start? Um, well, I guess one of the official things is that I am the founder and director of the nonprofit here in the United States in Southern Oregon just north of California, and it's the Karula Center for Nonviolence. I started the nonprofit ooh, in 2008 in response to the huge interest in some work that I had done, which was, to put it into a phrase, the diagnosis of complex post-traumatic stress disorder, complex PTSD in free-ranging, free-living African elephants. 
And that got a lot of public and scientific uh, interest. And so because of that, I founded this nonprofit. And shortly thereafter, I live on 30 acres, uh, like I said, in Southern Oregon. And um, it's my family's cabin. <laughs> We've had it's been in the family 70 odd years. And um, I started more of a formal sanctuary. I've always lived with non-human animals, but someone dropped a rabbit off. And so we became the tortoise and the hare sanctuary with desert tortoises. They're disabled. Um, I was asked to take them in. And so in addition to the rabbits that we rescue and uh, support, we have desert tortoises who are disabled. As I said, they've lost an arm or a leg or some kind of having suffered some hardship. And then we have other animals. So we became kind of this integrated education center and sanctuary. And um, now we've really um, expanded. Well, I wouldn't say expanded. I would say distilled uh, into sort of a non-dualistic approach where we're looking at phenomena in the world. We're looking at, quote unquote, Western science. And I use the quotes on purpose. I use that a lot because I think we need to change our language and concept, but under the umbrella of non-dualism. And so we're bringing in under that umbrella um, contemplative practice. So essentially that's what we're really doing is using this umbrella that looks at um, phenomena, issues, and questions in the world from a non-dual perspective. And you mentioned uh, the work that you had done with elephants. Um, that's the book that was Pulitzer nominated, isn't it? Elephants on yes. the Edge. And, um, yes. and that book really brought to light a new paradigm, which you've which you've called and is now sort of well known in the literature, trans species psychology. Could you explain that a little bit for our listeners? Actually, it's really not a new concept. Uh, what I did is I gave it a name. Uh, it's an understanding that from a conventional Western science perspective that all animals, and it's being extended to non-animals, meaning trees and other plants, have the same brain, mind, consciousness, capacities that we do. And this is from a neuroscience, neurobiological, neuropsychological perspective, so that the brain structures and processes, which even extend to octopuses who are invertebrates, have the same substrates that we do that gives us the capacity for thinking, feeling, consciousness, and things like that. And so from that perspective, I was able to make the diagnosis very rigorously for elephant PTSD. Um, so when I said it was nothing new, I named it because it's tacit in science. In fact, that's how all of neurosciences, biomedical research, et cetera, functions. Uh, there's no reason for probably billions now of rats, cats, dogs, you name it, to be used as surrogates in experiments to probe the human mind and brain and, and body. So I named transspecies psychology, trans meaning across species psychology. Again, that was purpose, that was purposeful because psychology has largely been confined uh, and thought of as quote unquote appropriate for humans and not non-humans. So ethology, animal behavior has been the field to study animals and psychology for humans. So transspecies psychology, I said, really was trying to bring this out of the shadows in terms of really how science knows uh, animals function as, you know, just like, like we do. And your background is very interesting because you have studied as a very sort of hardline scientist but you also i i understand have have studied jungian um psychoanalysis very deeply as well and that that seems to be a sort of unusual crossover yeah i think that the common i mean basically i feel like i've been doing the same damn thing all my life <laughs> um it's variations on the same thing but I, I think really what i am understanding now is i've always approached things implicitly unconsciously from a from a non-dual perspective so um my beginnings which were linguistics and chinese but you know they would fall under that umbrella as well but we're physics and mathematics and of course from physics if you're looking at it in a more synoptic way is a field of non-dualism although it is still dominated by classical physics so quantum physics etc and and of course same with mathematics <laughs> mathematics doesn't really have any bounds per se so when i did 
get my first doctorate in ecology, I, I was looking at it from that implicitly from the perspective of non-dualism. And of course, ecology has a long lineage of non-dual approaches. And psychology, particularly the kind, like you said, Jungian from C.G. Jung, who was in every kind of way, just a sort of a psychological version of David Bohm in quantum mechanics. So it was really kind of a, a marriage. And there was a lot of dialogue um, particularly in the first half of the 20th century, maybe a little bit later, between, you know, scholars like, you know, C.G. Young, David Bohm, Krishnamurti, spiritual leaders, etc. So it is, it seems unusual, but actually it's really kind of following on the heels of a very uh, uh, deep tradition. You seem to draw an awful lot together. I mean, looking at your work, there is this sort of in-depth analysis of the science, the neuroscience, um, hormonal activity. There's also this sort of like very empathic understanding of psychology, but also of behavior, culture and tradition as well. So it does seem um, it does seem that you are taking a very holistic approach to both animals and then in this latest book to to, to human animals as well. Yeah, it's a bit of um, a Humpty Dumpty kind of <laughs> journey, uh, picking up all the pieces from reductionism and dualism. Um, and, and that convention has been very strong as parsing up the world, parsing up concepts, parsing up, you know, turning everything into a subject or an object, of course, <laughs> you know, where the implicit authority and explicit authority is are humans. But again, that those are really artifacts and I would say that they really draw from social, economic, psychological, cultural artifacts. So when you're looking at, you know, zooming out to look at human, and this is germane to the to the new book that I co-authored with uh, Dr. Dar Darsha Narvaez, when you zoom out and look at the anthropological record, this, you know, 10,000 year, which we're experiencing writ large cultural view of the world is an anomaly. 99% of humans, 95, 91, whatever, um, really lived from a, a, a non-dual perspective. So essentially, when I draw from these different fields, it, it's really, like I said, under this non-dual umbrella. And the use of ethology, neuroscience it, it, it are really heuristics. Um, I use them as heuristics in terms of helping bridge or sort of like a multilingual you know, dictionary uh, to be able to draw people in and to, to introduce them and show them how this all fits within this holistic framework. One of the things that I noticed when I was preparing for this interview is that, you know, while many of your books have taken the um, human psychology and our understandings from human psychology and human neuroscience and then have applied the, that back to the animals using this um, sort of bilateral um, means of understanding animals. Um, the latest book takes it the other way. It reverses it in a sense that you um, that you use examples of many different animals and then bring that, bring light, shed light on human practices that way. So let's focus a little bit on on the evolved nest now. And um, and it's it's looking at at human parenting or at human childhood. Um, and you can you explain what you and your co-author, um, Dasha Narvaez, were, um, are exploring in that book? Well, I will say that it differ. I mean, the classic conventional way of talking about humans and animals, again, from a Western science perspective, has been making inference from uh, animals to humans and not the other way around. Um, so just zipping back a little bit to the elephant example is that uh, when I first started, uh, you know, looking into the phenomena of these elephants that were uncharacteristically, un in an unprecedented way, being very violent to other species and each other, um, that, you know, it was, it was, everything was, the first people who looked at it were looking at it from an ethological perspective. And I looked at it from a psychological perspective based on this single model, unitary model of brain, mind, and behavior from the neurosciences. And I, you know, I was very naive at the time. Um, I still am, <laughs> even more so. But 
I was like, wow, I've never seen anything like this in the literature. And I wrote a very well-known neuroscientist that I had uh, been reading his work, et cetera. And I said, um, you know, there's, I see all this stuff making inferences from animals, like how they behave, you know, how they're even their psychology, although it's made more implicit, um, you know, but I don't, you know, from animals to humans, but I don't see from humans, like what humans do is being um, applied to animals. And he said, well, it it's correct but it's not done. And later I was to understand why it was not done. In other words, why there is not bidirectional inference, which is the term I use saying, which is reflective of the neuroscience. It says when we make inferences about what animals are thinking and doing and apply that to humans, which is conventional, the opposite applies as well with equal rigor. So that means, again, in the case of the elephants, because of this common neural substrate, it was you know, it, it was just particularly, it was it was perfectly uh, legitimate and uh, scientifically rigorous to make that inference from human symptoms of trauma to the elephants in that way. And so in sort of flashing back then to the evolved nest, when each chapter, for example, is on a particular aspect of uh the uh, development, you wouldn't say the 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 culture and the and the psychological neuropsychological development of 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 humans, um, in particular babies. And that's the main field and, and and that Darsha has been working on for decades. Um, so we begin. I be, we begin each chapter from, for example, breastfeeding. Um, we begin that chapter from the perspective of sperm whales sperm whale breastfeeding, sperm whale mother-child, family-child relationships and culture. But it's done again, not as this animal model, which has been conventionally used in science. You know, here's animals and then it tells us about humans. It's looking at it really again from that notion of we are nature. So it's just like, oh, this is this is the culture of breastfeeding in and among sperm whales. And then we talk about how, you know, the evolution with humans in traditional societies. And again, how are the last 10,000 years, um, which has been an anomaly and a, and a profound departure from the rest of nature. So we're really looking at, um, you know, an implicit critique of the issues and problems and symptoms and suffering that are ongoing so rampant today among humans as an anomaly from our evolutionary roots, which resonate with all other species. So we actually see that in many traditional indigenous human cultures, which, which for whatever reason did not choose to go down the path of dualism and separation from nature and this notion of human prim primacy over nature. That's uh, just going back to the um, to the elephant book, because when you were talking there, it reminded me of one incredibly powerful section um, of the book that I'll always remember. And I think it was one of the sections that was taken out for an article in um, one of the UK newspapers. They when they sort of provided edited highlights from the book, it was one of the sections where you were drawing parallels between the behavior of these particular elephants and um, a sort of gang of teenage young men in in an inner city and how the um, how the the pasts of these elephants bore so many striking parallels with the pasts of young men in urban cities with a sort of like lack of far fatherhood, a lack of potential of parental um, sort of structures, a breakdown of culture and so on. And I found that so incredibly powerful. And it was at the time that I read it, which which because it was in the newspaper must have been fairly recent, quickly after it came out, was it was sort of mind blowing for me. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, it, it, it the I'll just recap for, for listeners who may not be familiar with the elephant story, is that um, starting in the 1990s, I had gone to South Africa, and that's when I first heard about this, is that there was uh, these incidents of the biologists and the park rangers finding dead rhinoceroses, both white and black rhinoceroses who are endangered. 
And at first, you know, it was kind of astounding and very alarming. And at first, the, they immediately jumped to the thing, oh, it's poachers, because the rhino horn is considered to be a, a very powerful a traditional medicine in, among Asian cultures. But the horns were intact. And this kept going on and on. And they didn't really have a clue. And then it was, it turns out, and this was over 100 rhinoceros who were killed. Uh, it turned out that they were young male African elephants. So that was extraordinary. I mean, from the sort of the basics is, you know, elephants are herbivores. <laughs> They're not carnivores. They don't have to kill other animals in order to survive and eat. They're very pacific. They're very pro-social with other species as well with each other. And everyone loves elephants because they are so loving. And I mean, not that other animals aren't, but because they're big <laughs> and they have a very powerful uh, civilization uh, that is huge. It used to be extend across all of Africa. And then of course there's Asia as well. So these young male elephants, um, the first, again, the, the first researchers looked at it saying, oh, well, they looked at it and they said there's a breakdown of their social structure. In other words, they were not just like you're alluding to with humans. They did not uh, they did. They were not afforded the traditional elephant society and civilization and, and the culture and cultural values. And so they brought in these big male elephants because in elephant culture, um, babies are born into what they call the natal family, which is there's mommy and there's aunties, there's a matriarch, a senior, typically senior female who kind of oversees and leads, although they have a very democratic um, way of making decisions together. And then there's other babies and then there's teenagers. And so that's the natal family. And that's kind of the nucleus of elephant civilization, elephant culture. And the females stay within the family as they grow up. But typically the males, when they become teens, which, you know, varies, but it's between nine and 12 years old, they are either kind of pushed out <laughs> or they leave on their own to join um, uh, other, an all-male older bull, which is the male, they, that's the term people use to refer to a, a male elephant group or area. So, you know, in a very kind of general way, their first phase of socialization. And then if we look at it, as I did from the neurobiological, neuropsychological perspective, the first phase of that early development of their brain, of their mind, of their emotions, their values, everything is within the NATO family. And for the males, then that second very important phase of the development, because the brain, just like with humans, is continuing to um, to develop and to, you know, as as he or she starts to experience the world, et cetera, with these older males. And that continues until the age of like 30 or even 35 years of age. So that's a long time. And that point is when they come into sexual maturity, which is called MUST, M-U-S-T-H, which is refers to the secretion, hormonal secretion. So these individuals, and this is where I was looking at it from a psychological, neuropsychological perspective, um, what had happened prior to that is all of these young males um, had been survivors of mass killings. So what happened is as apartheid in South Africa was collapsing, um, that that um, both the government as well as private reserves started importing ele elephants as well as other lions and other the big five back into South Africa to populate private and public uh, reserves and, and parks because they'd all been extirpated, they'd all been killed and wiped out. So they were a very powerful economic tourist draw for ecotourism. So at that point, it was not feasible to, you know, to, to transport a full grown elephant. So what they would do is have these mass killings with helicopters, you know, with guns shooting them down and they would kill most all of the family. And then the babies, they were infants. They were one, two, maybe, maybe three years old, uh, were survivors. And what they did is after killing the whole family is they would go down and they would capture these babies, tether them to the bodies, and then they would bring them in and transport them in trucks into South Africa to different parks. So these particular males um, experienced all of that. So from the perspective of traumatology, 
is they experience several severe traumas. Mm -hmm. So this affects brain, mind, emotions, etc. So there's the, you know, the horror of the of the helicopter slaughter. Um, I mean, you can it's unimaginable. And again, there's no way it's not within their culture to have helicopters. And I mean, it's different than being chased by a lion. Uh, they were then uh, tethered to, you know, the horror of tether being tethered to the body, being transported. And critically, and then this ties in to the evolved nest, is that they they did not experience the normative um, developmental neurobiology of the natal family. They were left on their own. They were brought to the part. They were babies. They were prematurely weaned. You know, typically an elephant will wean around four. They, they even can continue. But, you know, it, it's not that I don't want to make it sound so clinical. I mean, we're talking about, again, the whole. So you're talking about ripping apart the whole fabric of development, the whole fabric and meaning of life and experience. So these little baby males, they had to live on their own and they grew up and then and they went into um, when they killed the rhinoceros. And in many cases, they sexually assaulted rhinoceroses, they had gone into must prematurely, which means, you know, like at 12, 13, 14 years old, they were becoming, quote unquote, sexually active, as opposed to the normative, which is around 30, 35. So they did, they had a, a, a truncated, horrific, traumatic break from the natal family. And then they did not experience this second phase of socialization, which is meaning the brain development, et cetera. So they, this is the trauma. This is complex PTSD, meaning there were several different events and sustained trauma, which really underlied their, their behavior and their psychological symptoms, et cetera. So the evolved nest is looking at it, you know, from the perspective of um, I mean, we don't talk, well, we do mention it. We do mention it in the elephant chapter. We do mention what you talked about, the parallels with young men. Um, because if you look at, uh, you know, uh, you know, it's not just, it's not just gangs. Um, a couple of journalists, one was the Washington Post wrote about that um, in terms of the inner city here, but it's not just, it's, it's, it's writ large. We don't have the traditional society very much like the elephants and a lot of indigenous traditional human cultures retain that where there is this cohesion that's love it's care um there's uh interactions not just with a mother and a father but it's siblings it's aunts and uncles it's grandparents etc all nested within this larger culture and, and civilization so it, it's very striking and so in a sense you know, the elephant illustration is just mirroring <laughs> what we have created in our own human society, where there is no continuity, where there is abuse, where there is no kind of, you know, buffered, loving, um, coherent uh, container for an individual to to develop and grow. But it is interesting, and um, your mention of um, indigenous societies as well. I happened to be reading or listening on Audible because it it was free. Um, a book by um, a Native American gentleman, um, Bearheart, and right at the beginning, he talks about his, you know, his natal uh, environment and this this concept of um, you know this complete acceptance, this you know feeling of the whole the whole community um being there for him and embracing him and this complete acceptance and in contrast to that um talking to various friends about you know their early life experiences and how completely mm -hmm. contrasting they are um and one friend of mine today um he was he was talking to me about about his childhood which i i hadn't realized had been so incredibly traumatic and he he feels he's gone through um a process of a process of healing and he said um the thing that really stands out for me is that the entire quality of your life is marked by the quality of your relationships and um and i just thought yes yes and then i hoped that that included um which i'm i i hope that you would feel it did relationships with you know animals and um and trees as well because i think sometimes mm -hmm. the best relationships are with them but um, 
on on that same subject, um, I when I was um, rereading um, the evolved nest, I was really struck by some of the sections with wolves, which again talk about those closely related families and the development of um, morality and of um, as well as psychological security within the family. And I just wanted to read a section for um, for our listeners and viewers. Um, you write. Um, while sometimes we may feel alone in our individual bodies, the isolation and separation are an illusion. We're not alone. We do not live alone. We become with others, developing, growing and living symbiotically in companionship. They co-create us in sympoetic entanglement. In the techno-industrial urbanised world, it's easy to forget how we're integral to the ecologies in which we have evolved. Humans beavers, parrots and wolves are born into an ecology, an evolutionary environment that has co-evolved with previous generations and co-evolves with us as we live, um, which expands that idea of relationships and a natal environment into not just those members of your immediate family or your immediate community, but the very world that you're in. And I think as well as having lost family and community in many um, societies, we've certainly lost that sense of being in that place. Yeah, you know, this is also, uh, there's a problem that we're really grappling with. And this relates back to, like I said, in terms of the shift in my works the same, but kind of expanding into this framework of, of non-dualism as such. Because, for example, the term relationship is a kind of a parsing out. So it's still, a, you know, the, our language is is fraught with dualism. So it's not like, you know, two objects with a relationship. You know, the whole thing is it is whole. And we're in this, this is William James, one of my favorite quotes. You know, we're immersed in this, this you know, psychic continuum. You know, and he talks about like an ocean of consciousness in which we're all rooted. So we're swimming in this sort of, you know, psychic ocean. And our form is really just um, an, an, pretty much an illusion. It's there uh, and it has a function, but for us to see ourselves as discretized um, is really um, an incorrect kind of conceptualization. So the, 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 it's the cohesion and the coherence and again, this comes from David Bohm talking about uh, the quantum physicist, David Bohm talking about wholeness and talking about coherence um, and relationships are just, you know, they, they really are, it's all one thing. <laughs> so you can't really discretize it. So, you know, again, you know, I understand the thing about relationships, but in a sense, that's still a misnomer because we're really one. And that's a very difficult concept as well as experience for people like us who grew up in this dualistic world where there's so much attention almost all attention is on the material form and the subject and the object and a you and a me and us and them uh so again this is where the contemplative practices come in because you know the buddhism and mystic christianity and, and many other traditions indigenous many indigenous cultures um, are holistic. And so the whole idea is how that we can kind of uh, dissolve these perceptions and conceptualizations which discretize the world. And, and even doing that, what that does is it really introduces trauma. I mean, that if you want to look at it from a fundamental way, because that's like you were talking about the wolves, that's probably one of the most important themes that came comes out of this book, in my opinion. <laughs> and that is, they're, they're pretty much variations on the theme. We talk about elephants, we talk about parrots and beavers and wolves, you know, that eat other animals, right? And they're the variations on the theme in terms of their values and how they function. Um, and, and so they're all in this, they're all, that's the coherence of nature. And that's really where we depart as a, as a recent, recent part of our species. We depart from that. And so essentially the evolved nest is really saying, well, we, that departure 
has introduced this primal trauma, this primal tear. And to start reintroducing and re-experiencing these fundamental ways of being, whether it's raising a baby or you know interacting with each other from a holistic view is essential for really moving forward for survival and for life it's it's a it's a huge project um in that sense and but i wonder you know looking at it from through a slightly sort of narrower focus um, and considering our audience of many people, psychologists, psychologists in training, or people with a particular interest in um, in in an amateur interest in psychology, which is how I got involved in um, in doing this this work with Dr. Dave. Um, how does what you're working on here explain or or help to um, help to offer a route out of psychological struggles in a in a sort of in a sort of more concrete way. That comes from the contemplative practice, um, right? Because essentially, because essentially, um, why we do and what we do is governed by how we see and what we think. So the contemplative practices such as Buddhism, I'm just going to use that, that's something that I resonate with, Zen Buddhism, and particularly the work of Thich Nhat Hanh, is practices of meditation and mindfulness, which are specifically designed to dissolve, um, and I would even use the word disable, but through dissolution, disable these mental structures, these mental forms, which puts us in this world of division and conflict and issues. So the contemplative practices is experiential of dissolving these inner structures and, and forms. And, you know, what Thich Nhat Hanh calls these habit energies, which is, you know, Eckhart Tolle talks about the pain body. You know, I mean, we're pretty much in a large part, most of us probably are hardwired after 10,000 plus years of being enculturated with responding. And, you know, you can look again from neuroscience. I mean, you know, our reactions, reacting, reacting. So the contemplative practices are essential for dissolving that. And when you dissolve those things, and I don't know how many people, I'm sure everyone has at least moments where you're no longer up here. It's been dissolved and you are fully embodied in the world, whether it's, you know, the moment when you gasp and see a beautiful mountain or, you know, you have a moment with your beloved or, you know, any, any kinds of experience or meditation. And so by practices of mindfulness, practices of meditation and prayer in that way, we dissolve these internal structures and begin to experience the world in a different way. And by experiencing it, then we begin to respond and respond differently than when we are responding through the view of these mental structures. I want to talk to you in a moment about nature mindfulness, which is um, a particular practice that that you've developed and that's um, incorporated within the teaching of Carlos. But just briefly before that, were there particular areas when um, when you two were writing The Evolved Nest where you thought, okay, what we're writing here is really going to be very strongly resisted by readers. They're not going to want to, um, they're not going to want to be sort of like faced with what we are saying is, um, is, is better or, or more healthful um, for bringing up children. Well, both, um, I don't want to speak for Darsha, but I will say that both she and I in our, before our collaboration, in our work, have um, experienced uh, profound resistance, uh, even even breastfeeding. Darsha has uh, been writing extensively. And I mean, she's a par excellence scientist. I mean, she's not making anything up. She draws on very conventional science. More recently, she's been, you know, expanding and bringing in indigenous views and perspectives, which again are consonant with what we've been talking about. So it's very rigorous science. Mine is very rigorous science as well from the conventional neuroscience, neuropsychology perspective. But breastfeeding, for example, um, she's gotten tremendous 
um, pushback from from breastfeeding. Uh, and, you know, that's kind of a, it, it's, it's, it's seen in, I think, in, in many cases when I've even spoken to people as um, putting down feminism, um, being contra to women's liberation, forcing women to be barefoot and pregnant, you know. Um, so and then, of course, you know, my, my work has been largely with, with from the non-human nature perspective, this notion of trans species psychology. It's very, very hard for people to accept it because we basically are deconstructing, like I said, 10,000 years of, of cultural um, inoculation, cultural, you know, conditioning. And it, you know, I'll speak about, for example, the trans species psychology. Well, if we're saying that they've got what we've got, that means we can't do what we do. There's no, there's no rationale to justify, for example, using um, monkeys, using mice, using octopuses, as surrogates for experiment, as sur human surrogates for experimentation. There's no, there's no uh, epistemic uh, rationale for justifying that. And there's huge psychological as well as economic and social, you know, uh, reasons where people don't want to make that change. So yeah, it's it is. I we we are hoping because. Um, Everything is so cataclysmic. In other words, this 10,000 year experiment obviously is a big failure um, <laughs> that people are, and they are really looking, many people are looking for an alternative, particularly, I think, you know, quote unquote, younger people, uh, they don't want to repeat. And and there, frankly, there really isn't a choice. You know, it's like, you know, that road's not working anymore, for sure. So we'll see. You know, I mean, I, you know, it's our, we collaborated together as, as a way of bringing this together in a holistic way um, as an offering. Um, and we draw on conventional science as such, um, as well as indigenous writers and things like that, um, because it's all very commonsensical. So it's really not anything new. We're just kind of putting the pieces together with another attempt to start to articulate a holistic paradigm or a holistic view um that is uh rooted in what we'd call non-dualism and that holistic view incorporates as we were suggesting earlier the environment and i think um do you refer to the idea of an ecological sense of self in in the book um and and how that is related to nature mindfulness if you could talk us through a little bit about nature mindfulness as a practice and um, and the the different sense of self that through that kind of work we might be able to um, reach reach out towards or develop towards. Um, I can't say that we use the term ecological self. I can't remember. We probably did <laughs> because it has been a term that's been used in in, in other literature and other circles. Um, I'll, I'll say about nature mindfulness. Nature mindfulness is a, a, a term, a phrase, a practice that I coined, again, very much like transspecies psychology. I didn't invent, it's not that thing new. Nature mindfulness is no different than um, the mindfulness practices that Thich Nhat Hanh um, taught and others taught. The difference is, is that it really emphasizes, so transspecies psychology said, you know, cuts across the species. So it breaks that barrier between human, non-human. Nature mindfulness does the same thing. It's saying when we meditate, when we are mindfulness, it's not just connecting, quote unquote, with other humans. It's again, bringing attention to the fact that that mountain is sentient, that the tree is sentient, that we are living in this soup of sentience. <laughs> And so the nature mindfulness is practices where, for example, um, in some of the the meditation things that I that I teach, is that we meditate with a tree, maybe a tree in our garden, um, or maybe a, a gopher, or in other words, that it's really experiencing these deeper quote unquote states of consciousness um in in union again that's a, a way so it brings attention to the fact that it's not like we're connecting with nature we are nature and that everything we experience and everything that um we do is nature and and so that's what the emphasis of nature mindfulness so it just it's just a, a mindful way of bringing up attention 
that we're not just within this human form. And a lot of the discussions in that you see with teachers, which is terrific. I mean, there's been this sort of burgeoning number of uh, Tara Brock, you know, Jack Cornfield, this is in Buddhism, and Richard Rohr, uh, Mystic Christianity. He's a, a Catholic uh, father, non-dual. I mean, he's written many, many books on the whole notion of non-dualism. There really is a convergence in that way. And But the emphasis in terms of its quote-unquote application, if you want to call it that, is really intraspecific among humans. Um, it is nature is mentioned, but still that's the point. It's, nature is still add on. Over there. And what, yeah. And what we're trying to do with things like nature mindfulness is that's it. We are nature. We're in it. And then that brings attention to, again, that process of dissolution, which gives us the perception and experience of being separate. I wanted to read out another section from from the book here, um, which is is relevant to, to what you're saying now. Um, you write, the modern world has forgotten what wholeness looks like in a human being and human communities. Maslow, referring to Abraham Maslow, wrote about self-actualized people from interviews and historical analysis of a couple of dozen people he admired. He identified numerous characteristics. Self-actualizers have a more efficient perception of reality and more comfortable relations with it. They accept self, others, and nature as they are and have empathy for all. They're simple, natural, spontaneous, and have a continued freshness of appreciation. Problem-centered. They are creative and autonomous and independent from the culture. They have mystic or peak experiences and a non-hostile sense of humour. They have a democratic character structure and discriminate between means and ends, between good and evil. They have deeper interpersonal relations. They are resistant to enculturation and transcend any particular culture, which I thought, and you, you write, you write, um, that nestedness, this sense of being, isn't just for children. You develop that, that section by saying, but it's actually even more than that. And when you meet people who are who really have grown up through a nested culture, there is this really noticeable difference in manner, in behavior, in the sense of in the sense of being with that person. Um, and it's something that we are so unfamiliar with that it seems sort of like alien and exceptional, whereas actually it is what would have been normative. Yes. Uh, and, and you know, key among this, and this is why the book is not just for families or people raising children, um, is it, it's, it's to support, which is the natural impetus, which has been occluded by this conditioning over 10,000 years of separation. And it, it's to support individuals' natural intuition of how to be with other humans um, in the sense of uh, what is, like you said, normative from an evolutionary perspective. Um, and talking about um, th that idea of relationship as being a term that is th that is sort of uncomfortable, having that sense of dualism. I had that experience recently. I was um, involved in a group that was talking about um, trees and we're talking about meditation, med meditating with trees and um, that this was a shared experience with a tree. And when I was sitting there, I was thinking there's something about this that I don't feel comfortable with. And what I didn't feel comfortable with, it was like the experience with the tree had this sense of like Venn diagram of two discrete individuals meeting and that the experience was this crossover point in the middle. And I thought it doesn't, it isn't like that to me. And I was um, felt more comfortable um, using the, using a sense of, um, something more like a, a kind of entangled mycorrhiza with movements and processes and that the 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 coming together is is not two nodes that happen to cross over but two processes that are that are that is sort of like coming together at that moment in time but that are all already always entangled anyway but at that moment the consciousness the consciousness the process is there together and it felt that just made me feel a lot more comfortable than the idea of these sort of venn diagrams i don't know if that sort of fits into 
um, into the the sort of mm -hmm. idea of nature consciousness that you've been talking about? Yeah, I mean, the way I would describe it is that um, there, like I said, we're in this soup of consciousness. Yeah, and there, there is, you know, although we use in the book, for example, the term entanglement, you know, which is obviously used in physics and things like that, there, there really isn't. I mean, it's just a continuum. And there's, so really the only kind of thing is like dissolving these, these internal forms, which give us any kind of sense of you and me, or, you know, the tree and me or anything like that. And so it's not like, like as you described, I agree. I mean, this is just my experience. It's it's not like, oh, I'm connecting with the tree. It's not that way at all. We're already connected. The reason we don't feel connected is because of these internal structures. So it's kind of like, a, you know, it's like having, a, let's say you have a tank of water and you put a partition in it, right? Um, so that's the tree and me, our consciousness, and we're meditating together. But really what it is, is that taking that partition out, which is the dissolution of these internal structures, that's really kind of how I understand um, and I would describe the process of, of nature mindfulness in that sense. Do you feel that the that the work that that you've been doing can um, can offer um, those practicing um, in psychology and psychoanalysis, those training or those interested, and a different way or a different framework of approaching the work that they do, or coming up with different ideas in the way that they respond with their with their patients with their clients? Yeah, I I, I mean again. That's what the meditation and mindfulness and the, that various other schools of, of contemplation, um, people are doing that. For example, Dan Siegel, who's a neuroscientist, and um, I've forgotten his name now. He wrote the, I think he wrote the arc of Buddhist psychology, I mean, the Buddhist psychologist, et cetera. There's a whole Tara Brock, Jack Cornfield. Um, you know, essentially, that's what they're doing you know, in terms of whether it's their private practice or their teachings or their group, is they they utilize meditation and mindfulness to interact, to be with clients or, you know, others um, from that space. And so the nature mindfulness and the nature consciousness that, that I that I talk about is is really trying to, you know, nudge um, whether it's psychologist, whoever it is, to really understand everything from this perspective of we're embedded in nature, so that the questions, the issues that a particular individual may be coming to a, I'm just going to use for example, someone coming to a psychologist, someone coming to a clinician, a therapist, or whatever, you know, from a perspective of nature consciousness and nature mindfulness, that the potentially that the issues and questions and that the individual is concerned about change because the framing is different. If you're right. looking at it from the synoptic view of we are nature, then the particular kind of question and issue that the individual have is with viewed within a very different framework than an anthropocentric framework. So, you know, it it does potentially, I mean, from my point of view, it changes everything. It, one of the things that I think is most important is it, and um, and this is again in the mystic, you know, the different kinds of contemplative uh, practices and, and schools, is it really de-emphasizes the individual. And so we become, um, you know, our issues and our problems become recontextualized, not that they're not real, but they become recontextualized and their quote unquote solution becomes very different, becomes transformed because the framework is different. That sounds beautiful. Um, I wanted to let you finish up by um, either talking about what you're working on now or anything that you feel um, particularly um, it would be important for, for, for you to bring up at this point. Well, I guess there's two things that come to mind. One, I really encourage, um, 
I really encourage uh, uh, people to to listen to non-humans, you, you know, privilege them <laughs> as opposed to human privilege, you know, not use them to learn from, um, but listen to them and shape their lives um, to support non-human nature. Um, there's, they're silenced. You know, we have a quote unquote sanctuary, which is really for me an extended, it's just an extended family, but they are exemplars in terms of quote unquote, how to be in the world. And again, that's part of the nature mindfulness is to um, learn how to be how they are. And um, there, that that is so important. I mean, that is absolutely critical, particularly when you're looking at, you know, you're talking about healing, you're talking about it, you know, kind of progressing in a way. Um, it's, you know, 99.9, I don't even know what the statistic is. There are billions of non-humans. And we're just a small fraction. We are dominating the planet. But when you're thinking about that, we need to fit in and we need to prioritize their ability to live and, and be in the world in peace and well-being that needs to that by prioritizing that we will speed up our own progress toward healing and well-being so that's the one point the other is you know trivial <laughs> i'm working on a new book you know the world doesn't need another book it is a very grounding experience for me in a bizarre kind of way but i'm writing under the umbrella of non-dualism, talking about the things I've already talked about, you know, David Bohm. Um, and also I'm, I'm talking about non-humans. Um, so I'm bringing these different epistemes of Thich Nhat Hanh and Charlie Russell. Um, I, I wrote a book about the episteme, the knowledge system and the ways of being ontology of Charlie Russell, who lived with grizzly bears for pretty much all of his life. I really encourage people to read um, his book, his grizzly, grizzly Heart, and my book, which was really a collaboration, unfortunately, he died. Um, <clears throat> but it's really about his episteme and ontology that he shared with brown bears and grizzly bears. So I'm bringing all these things and weaving them in, you know, kind of from a conceptual, but also from a practice perspective, from an experiential perspective by incorporating uh, the contemplatives. That sounds wonderful. And when does the Evolved Nest um, come out? Um, August. In August. Okay, so people must look out for that. And in between, um, we've got in our show notes, we, we can put in the show notes um, a link to Carolus. Is that is that the website that you would prefer people to direct towards or your personal one or both? Yeah, both is fine. We're building a new website, which will be more reflective, but it's not done yet. <laughs> so they can look at those two. <laughs> That's wonderful. Well, Gay Bradshaw, thank you so much for being our guest on Shrink Wrap. Thank you. Thank you. That was terrific. Well, that was mind expanding. I've read several of Gay's books because of my interest in non-humans. But the evolved nest draws human and non-human development into a whole. It's fascinating to learn of the parallels and similarities, and enlightening too when we consider how our own nesting traditions over the past two, five or ten thousand years have diverged from the normative, and to consider how that divergence may have been harming us. Gay is right to mention that these conversations can be difficult because our terminology, our language, is permeated with dualistic framings. There simply aren't words for all that we may wish to express. That said, using words, Gay and Dasha Narvaez do express profound insights, backed by science, in The Evolved Nest, which is due to be published in August this year. Gay tells me it will also be narrated, and so will also be available on Audible. If you want to check out Gay's work, her website is www.gabradshaw.com. Bradshaw is B-R-A-D-S-H-A-W. That links to her non-profit, but the website for the non-profit, Kerolos, is www.kerolos.org, with Kerolos spelt K-E-R-U. 
L-O-S. After the interview, we spoke a little about Gay's new project, which draws together nature consciousness and contemporary understandings of physics. That too sounds wonderful. I can't wait. I hope that you found this interesting. And thanks, great thanks, to Dr. Dave for offering me this opportunity. Hi, Dr. Dave. This is Jim Wagner in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I am just finishing my degree in marriage and family therapy and am happy to contribute to your podcast. Shrink Wrap Radio has been a huge benefit and continues to be a huge benefit to my education. Uh, I'm so grateful for the work you're doing. Please continue to keep it up. Thanks so much. Today's interview is brought to us by my Oxford-educated London associate, Isabella Clark, who is also a broadcaster, blogger, and inveterate student. I'm so blessed to have someone of her caliber dedicated to shrink-wrap radio because from time to time she produces an interview with someone who isn't even on my radar. Such is the case with today's guest, who has for years conducted scientifically solid research on non-duality. This interview has really changed my own thinking and preconceptions. I've been a bit put off by people who say they are non-dualists because that very declaration seemed to me to set up a dualistic opposition right off the bat. This interview with Dr. Gay Bradshaw gets me out of that loop and shows me how trivial my objection has been. Take a listen for yourself. You've been shrink-wrapped by Dr. Dave. All the psychology you need to know, and just enough to make you dangerous.